Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So, let's get started. Hello. Hey there. Hey, hey, hey. We're yeah. having a dual recording day. We're having a dual recording day, so we're on our second glass of wine. <laughs> Make us look good, Jordan. <laughs> our second Come glass. On. Second don't, square. <laughs> don't make us look like luscious. So we're on. It's a Sunday. A one Sunday plus Sunday. glass of wine. It's Sunday. We we're had a nice drinking, little brunch. And we just did our mimosas. episode on repatriation. repatriation. And we have a guest. I'm still here. Jonathan's here. Jonathan Winterman of UCLA is here. Dr. Jonathan Winterman. Dr. Jonathan Winterman, and he's going to help us answer patron questions. Yeah, so we're going to do March Patreon questions. Which I'm really excited because these are always my favorite, as a listener, these are always my Ooh. favorite episodes, so I'm really excited to be here. I love that. I can't believe you listen to us. Episodes. <laughs> Um, that he actually does listen to yeah. us. I mean, you, you don't have enough already at our place I don't of have, business. Uh, you know, it's a really great thing to listen to at the gym, I find. Uh, <laughs> like, no, maybe I'll listen to Karen Jordan. Yeah, I find, yeah. I find both of your voices calming. But don't we interrupt each other too much? Don't you find that, like, we have this normal conversation? A lot of people I'm like... I'm trying to be better about no, it. No, no, but it doesn't matter. We're having a normal conversation, and we're talking almost the way we would actually mm -hmm. talk, right? Yeah. And a lot of people are like, they want it to be more curated, more controlled and they don't like it that we're having this conversation because we'll go off on our own threads and we might forget something mm -hmm. that we were supposed to say or whatever but that we're talking like we normally would you know i'm constantly afraid that i interrupt too, people too often and i think it's just we're all just excitable academics and i, mean, Jonathan, I, I like you that you know energy. i interrupt people too often i think it's you know. also yes, it's changing in types of conversations yeah like age yeah that's true so what you're saying is we're millennial and under audience yes we're not, maybe Gen X-y for yeah. me, but we're not but a I boomer audience. How we talk is I changing. I agree. So like, I think for us younger people, it, we don't notice it. She just aged me down. No, like no, I meant like, you, no, no, you aged yeah, me down. I aged you I'm down because like you're part of the group. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm Like, so like Jonathan's not going to notice it as something bad. Yeah, okay. But okay. Well, a lot I of the podcasts to. I live, listen to are very controlled, Same. very controlled, but, but they, but they still interrupt both. a little. I do both. Also, a lot of them are run via Zoom, and Zoom doesn't let you interrupt. Whereas the way we do it, you can interrupt. Yes, because we're all live in person. But anyway, so I'm glad you like our yes. Patreon patron questions because I enjoy taping them a mm -hmm. lot because I never know. I, I don't look mm -hmm. in advance. Jordan's just going to be like, what do you think of this? And I'm like, holy shit. Yep. I never thought about it that way. And then we just kind of riff and have fun. And yeah, so you're just... here for this. And the questions are also always great. So. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's collaborative. Has... That's why I probably like it because it's a truly collaborative effort. Yeah, that's yeah. good to see what people are thinking. Good. All right, well, let's dive in then. Yeah. So Matt sends in a question. Was Ma'at ever trotted out to repress labor revolts like at Dira Medina? Fuck Was yeah, Matt. Was there a better god <laughs> to keep labor in its place or were the artisans with their behind-the-curtain view of the religious culture immune to such religious threats? And why did the strike stage sit-ins at the temple, at the temple specifically, was state and temple seen as one and the same, or were the temples more convenient as a walk to an administrative center too far away? So I mean, the temples Matt were cheated. closer Matt in. cheated. He put two questions in there, so we have okay. to hit the well, ma'at. Well, hit the ma'at first. You could answer that with books and books and books. So yes. we have to yeah. hit the ma'at, and my, I was so busy thinking about ma'at, I glazed sure. over for well, the temples. I'll, I'll go so through the next questions back. later. So I'll start the ma'at, and then Jonathan can... can 
piggyback. But like ma'at means truth, justice. Some people think it means balance. The American way. The American way. But like there's nothing wrong with balance. There's nothing wrong with truth. These are things we all aspire to. This is a beautiful ideological purity and truth truth, though but (laughs) whose truth and when you put it in practice something like law we want we don't want people stealing our shit and like Mm -hmm. being anarchist or or order we want things to work in the way they're meant to work but when you have when somebody then says oh law and order i'm a law and order president you know what that means and it's a cipher for something else so i don't want to speak against beautiful ideals from antiquity. I don't want to speak against Egyptian religion. I don't want to speak against any people who find their own indigenous connection to these things. However, I do want to say that ma'at is used by those in power to maintain their power. And it's not that crazy a thing. And um, and I have written more about this in The Good Kings, but I want to hear what Jonathan has to say about this. Yeah, so is it, so I, as if you kind of addressed it from the big picture, maybe I'll look at kind of the, the smaller little nitpicky things. Um, so it's been a while since I've read the Turin Strike Papyrus, so I don't exactly remember what's in there. But I don't remember Ma'at being it's addressed. Really. No. Um, and also, like, if I think of... And, and also the other thing but is that... But we're only... If, from whose perspective is the Strike Papyrus? It's, I think it's an official record. Mm-hmm. Right, it's not from the striker's perspective. No. Remember it being somewhat sympathetic I think, to yeah, the striker. I think it it's is kind a of, West Theban text yeah. written yeah. partly from the striker's perspective. And it's a day log. It's like what we yes. did, because yes. it's like going around the walls, because, yes. um, you know, like it was kind of like a record of the strike activities. And um, But again, it's, it's this is... This speaks to other aspects of the question which are difficult to address. Again, this kind of, you know, is it artistic or administrative or government? And again, these are all the same thing. There's no real clear divisions. And also when we're speaking about this community in particular, we're speaking about a very, very kind of, you know, special community. And yeah, go so ahead. So the, the Strike Papyrus was written by a senior scribe, Amenacht, who recorded how the workmen went two weeks, 20 days without payment, and as a stopgap measure, he himself went to the Temple of Hormheb to get the grain. So we're getting it from his perspective. Mm. And that's so, just one text. There's many Yes, there's, there's many other texts. things like Ostrakhan and such like this. But so, like, I think maybe that's why it's a somewhat sympathetic interpretation. Because it's, it's someone, there's someone who's in yeah. kind of the middle, the middleman. So their ma'at yes. is one man's ma'at is another man's loss, arguably. But would you argue that Ma'at, good Ma'at, like actually Ma'at of being a suffer- balance, a, real a balance, balance, would be the workers getting their pay? So if anything, the strike shows that Ma'at's out of balance. Mm, you know, or would they re- not have thought of it that way? You know. Also, I will say that we talk about the Turin strike papyrus as if it's a strike in the modern yes. way, where there's like the workers versus like yeah. those in control of production. And this is such a Marxist idea and that, like, or that, that like capitalist and a Marxist idea. And I'm not sure really if it applies to Egypt. I don't really, because they we were have more so like, much, where's my compensation? We have for the so little evidence when it comes to resistance in an economic capacity in this way, other than kind of people just like, you know, fudging numbers or getting up and just like leaving and not paying taxes like the idea of a, a like a labor union like which this kind of seems to speak to is just so unique that it I have a hard time saying strike 
a strike or not, I, I just even have a hard time saying more about it in general. Yeah. Um, well, so to Matt's second point about the artisans being more behind the curtain because they are from Dira Medina, they're working at these tombs, they maybe have more more religious knowledge, they're working in these places, being immune to so-called ideological threats. Oh, I totally agree with that. You know, like they're like, you can't pull the veil over us. Like we're the ones who are doing all this work. We're making your tomb for you. Mm -hmm. So like if we stop work, it has more impact versus like if we someone else stopping work. If we stop work, we stop producing your ideology yes. and the ideology exactly. falls apart. Yeah. It's more than that. I would say the most amazing thing about the Strike Papyri as a, and Ostraca as a group for me are that these Dural Medina Valley of the Kings and Queens artisans got away with it at all mm -hmm. without yeah. any sort of repercussions. Yeah, because yeah. they could have easily been fired and a normal situation, fired and you get new people. But well, you after, can't because these are very skilled mm, After artisans. the strike, give it the reign of the next king and they fired half of the say crew. The crew goes down. And they said, you know, we're, I'm firing half of the crew. The choice is yours. Figure it out. And you can imagine how many bribes went to the foreman that day. It's like right? our strike. <laughs> so yeah, you're you're gonna strike strikes, in my opinion, are generally they're either taking money back and trying to redistribute things, or it's the beginning of an institutional collapse that yeah. you can't stop. This is the latter. Yeah. This is the beginning of an institutional collapse that you can't stop. And I think the most important uh, power that the Daryl Medina artisans had, their chip to play, so to speak is that not only were they going to stop building the ideology and creating the ideology, but this is an ideology that was accessible to the highest of elites. Not many people got back to the Valley of the Kings or Queens and saw mm -hmm. all of these treasures and things. They knew where the bodies were buried, literally, mm -hmm. and they knew where you could get such things. And I'm not saying that Ramses III, there was a mass of tomb robberies not I was quite say when yet. when does this fall this is yeah, Ramses III Late Ramses so. III not quite yet but it's you know these things could easily be happening at a high elite level right mm -hmm. so say um uh, Setnacht goes into his tomb and he takes over Tawasret's tomb and things are really bad after the civil wars where they took everything back from Tawasret and mm -hmm. and and other people so Maybe they put Setnacht in and they bury him with golden jewels and they keep a couple of things, <laughs> you know. Yeah. They pull a little thing out here or yeah. there to help fund their regime that, that needs to be funded. And Ramses III is like not looking the other way or doesn't really notice. Or the Thebans are doing this and Ramses III is often Per Ramses or something like this. <laughs> right. So I think a lot of these things, tomb robbery is happening all the time at the highest of elite levels. And who would know that and facilitate that the best? but those Dero Medina mm -hmm. workmen. And I think that kind of thing is happening. So for them to go marching, everyone is a part of that institutional power structure at Thebes and beyond is going to be like, what do they know about me? How, how much are they gonna tell about me? Are they gonna give me away in that relationship? So what they have is institutional knowledge. So that's why they're able memory. to mm -hmm. quote unquote strike. They can do whatever they want because they have this special. But again, it's, it, this is, picks up on something you mentioned earlier, Kara, because you said that this was the beginning of institutional collapse. Mm -hmm. That actually, if you if we look at it that way, you can see that this was a successful kind of mm -hmm. um, example of 
the West Theban system pushing back against kind of the central administration, where then at the end of the New King, the thing that causes the end of the New Kingdom is the West Theban administration mm -hmm. pushing back on the central administration, and it does not go well for them. No. Okay, so to their third point, third question of why are they doing their little sit-in, strike, whatever, at the temple of Hormheb and not somewhere else? Well, yeah, why aren't they going to, like, the town hall or something? Like, why are they going... To the temple, is that who's funding their compensation? How's the kind of who's not reciprocity? Paying yeah. Whose king are they building? They're building the king's tomb. Yep. Who's the king's man? The vizier. He's got some butlers and other things. Yep. But they're not going to a vizierat office on the east bank in the Niut, mm -hmm. which is where I assume the, the vizierat's office would be. They go to Amun temple installations, particularly those in the West Bank mm -hmm. near to where they live. The mortuary temples, yeah. But there's still those mortuary temples, temples, millions of yeah. years, whatever you want to call them, are still arms of the Amun priesthood. And I would argue that this is an institutional patronage shift from a palace-based economy, court-based economy, to a temple-based or mm -hmm. army-based institutional economy they're not going to go to the army yeah. because what the hell does the army care about mm -hmm. building a tomb except where can i get some gold they're to going to the, they're but, going to the next yeah most powerful most quote-unquote rich yeah institutions and they're the protected temples. they're given funds by that almond institution yeah. and that's when the patronage shift starts to move i mean this is that slow train wreck that goes into the 21st dynasty when those priests those priests, those high priests of Amun become priest kings and, and create that Theban kingship. This is the beginning of that, yeah. that patronage shift. Though, though, of course, it's not the priest kings from Thebes that they become the priest kings. They're priest kings that are imported because the, the, the priest kings in Thebes are the, the priests in Thebes are not working out. And then the priest kings from the <laughs> north are coming down, besieging them, and then taking over their office and being like, well, now I'm a priest king. It's yeah. super interesting because all the guys in the 21st dynasty become these priest kings have Libyan origins. Mm -hmm. They're mercenary dudes and mm -hmm. they're military yeah. origins. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even though I just said that they're not going to go to the military institution uh, to, to get their stuff, the more this continues, the more the Amman institution and the military institution are inextricably intertwined. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You cannot tell them apart. Most of the high priests of Amman at the end of the 20th dynasty into the 21st were generals first. Yeah. So they're there with martial, violent power, and then they cloak it in typical Egyptian fashion with a religious power. And again, this what we're looking at with the strike papyri, with the tomb robbery papyri, all of this disruption that we get kind of in real time in a really interesting way. Ramses the Third's assassination. The assassination, the Turin judicial papyrus, all of this is like, the slow train wreck of, of institutional and government collapse mm -hmm. and patronage shifting, mm -hmm. which is super Yeah, people figuring out who yeah. can provide for them best. Yeah. But again, interesting, again, to just kind of close out the question, interesting that Ma'at is not really heavily mentioned in any like, of these oh, documents. You never see like, oh, because of Ma'at, like, go yeah. away or something, yeah. Ma'at is not, while it has kind of like its background noise, but it's more background noise in terms of like a summary of everything that the kids, the king is supposed to be doing. like. I don't think Ma'at was really the purview a lot of, you know, probably elites to some degree, but as you go lower down the hierarchy, I think they have less and less to do with Ma'at. Ma'at is more about controlling them. Yeah. It's not about them doing Ma'at, it's about them being controlled. Yeah. If you look at Ma'at through a Marxist lens, then it's about the power of the patron. Mm -hmm. And just to take tomb robbery as an example, 
if you are breaking ma'at, you are a poor peasant who's going into a tomb, taking a really nice coffin set, setting it on fire, coming back the next day to get the gold to feed your family. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody coming from the outside might be like, but they have to feed their family. But within that system, embedded with that system, what they have done is beyond immoral because they have destroyed somebody's body. Mm -hmm. They have destroyed somebody's coffins. They have done so in a very roughshod manner that does not value the work and labor put into that burial. And this is why, and this is the book I'm working on now, which, and I'm confused, should it be recycling for death or recycling death? Everyone weigh in on this, please. But like only those who are participatory in imposing the Ma'at system get to break the rules of Ma'at or rewrite them yeah. and commit the tomb robbery themselves and do so in a partic particular way so that it's cleansed for them. Yeah. Because the poor person can't take the coffin and bury themselves yeah. or their family member in it. That would be beyond ma'at. That's that's not mm -hmm. that's anti ma'at. Mm -hmm. But if the rich elite does that, goes into their family tomb and says, "I need to inherit from my ancestors and I need to transform them. I have no access to wood. I'm going to take Aunt Bertha out, put her to the side, take this coffin, update it. She's always Aunt Bertha. I love Aunt and Bertha. then <laughs> and then replaster her and repaint it." That person's allowed to do so in accordance with Ma'at because they owned it. They mm -hmm. made it in their family lineage. The poor person can't cut in yeah. and do that. Mm -hmm. It's the same way when a rich when a rich old dude says, some boomer dude is like, I worked hard for my position. Do they really work hard? Is the janitor working harder? But the janitor doesn't have I paid for my college. And you're like, yeah, it was $200. It's because you had Marxist support yeah. <laughs> for your white ass when uh -huh. Cal University of California was completely Free covered. for everyone, mm -hmm. yeah. But So the janitor worked or works but doesn't have the generational wealth, but you can claim that you worked harder when you're a jobs creator. Mm -hmm. And anyway, this is the whole last chapter of my book. So yeah, Ma'at, in, in principle, taking society out of it entirely, all of us equal, Ma'at is a beautiful concept. It's amazing that the Egyptians were able to verbalize it, put it into writing, create an afterlife system about it. But, but like all concepts of morality and justice aren't. Justice can don't, be a beautiful word on its own. Meted out in exactly, out in and then you start ways. to write laws so that black people get put into jail hella more than white people mm -hmm. do, and then it, what the hell the is war it? On drugs. Is it justice? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or who's justice? Yeah. And how many Egyptologists do you know who work with Maad in this way? Who who does this? Who gives cynical side eye? That's a hard. I mean, the Ma'at's such a philosophical. Hmm. I mean, besides Emily Teeter, who has really done a lot with Ma'at. And not a lot of side eye there. There's though, no right? side no, eye. No, no, I meant, yeah. but like besides positive. Like I mean, Osman like is Osman's the big Ma'at yeah. person. Um, Very positive. But still. and then if you think of Maulana Karenga, um, who is an author um, from Cal State Long Beach. Um, who again wrote kind of this again treatise on Maat as this kind of beautiful, beautiful mm. thing, but Maat from an African indigenous for perspective. For an African indigenous perspective. But again, Maat, in my opinion, I, I'm kind of aligned much more with your your Marxist Marxist interpretation of it. Maat doing Maat means like my arms are bound behind my back Keeping in a painful way and I am subjugated. Yeah. That is doing Maat. Like And that and, the police force is here to keep the white people's goods safe is not here to keep an inner city exactly. safe yeah. within itself. Yeah. It's here to impose it's, a power. It's to yeah. explain kind of what things are. And again, maybe we can find kind of redemptive aspects within the larger philosophy, but not in terms of its practice and but not yes, in who exactly. it was 
Yeah, maybe in theory it's too. good, but in practice, not so much. But let's be clear. This is a generational discussion we're having. If we brought a whole bunch yeah. of boomer Egyptologists into this, they would go off on Ma'at being this... Yin, yin, yang, and yeah. this, like, philosophical, like... And the one Balance. time I had, the one time I was misbehaving, it was actually good that the police yeah. stopped me because I was driving drunk for the yeah. fifth time. And because we all did that back then and no one cared. <laughs> we didn't have seatbelts. <laughs> but, but I think it would be a completely different discussion. And the way we might talk about it now is, is very different. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Um, keep in mind that I have been, I've just been recently criticized because of what I've written in The Good Kings about my notions of Ma'at and the eloquent peasant and those mm -hmm. things. And people who write me direct emails going, this is wrong. You are taking You're a beautiful their African yeah. indigenous philosophy and you are subverting it. And I'll say again, clearly, I'm not here to subvert the abstract philosophy. I think we could all try to be in better balance. But when I see it imposed unfairly to generationally benefit the wealthy and the dominant yeah. um like, status like religion i'm gonna mm -hmm. speak up in theory are great but and to in see it veiled by religion yeah. without any of us giving it some cynical side i have a huge problem with yeah. that and i will speak up and say so. so well so matt finishes on with you provided provided me with much joy and things to think about a big thanks for your efforts i just hope i have strong enough espresso to keep Oh my goodness. Thanks, Matt. That's Thanks, awesome. Matt. That's so sweet. Very sweet so of you. So you and, you and Jonathan will be espressoing and listening I, to this part of the podcast. I wish I could do espresso. Matt can have all of my espresso. You can't it, do it. It messes with my heart too much. Yeah, I was going to say, Jonathan either. and I are too anxious of people yeah. with too much caffeine. <laughs> so that's three. And Amber, you had to cut down caffeine just recently. So we can't, we got to keep the caffeine out of things, but damn, we can drink. So, you know, yeah, we like we, the, we have other things. we like the depressants. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. The depressants here. <laughs> so, we already yeah, have, yeah. we have our self induced stimulants. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there, we just had a drink for you, Matt. Thanks. Turning to other things you consume, Brian asks about food. What oh. types of food was available? What were they, et cetera? What are people eating? So, I mean, we could write a book about this and go mm -hmm. on and on and on for hours, but just, you know, in, I guess, a couple minutes, types of food, we could go through grains, meats. Yeah. I mean, we, we should do a whole podcast on this. We should this. do. But we, we would have to invite someone, I think, who's a little better. A foodie. Uh, yeah. Or just who connects maybe more. What is the two main, you know, ideologically significant pieces of Egyptian food? Bread and beer. Yeah. That's wheat like and barley. Wheat and barley. Not not wheat, actually. It's emmer and barley. Emmer, wheat comes emmer, in later. Yes. The emmer and the barley. Suit, the suit wheat comes in later. emmer wheat? We, oh, I think, yeah, I yeah, think yeah, it's just yeah. our bad understanding. I mean, here. the way I like to describe it is that the Egyptians are always full on cheap carbs and a little bit drunk all the time. But that's, I mean, that's been peasant ways of life since forever, right? Yes, Meat's but, always a luxury because it's a harder to access resource. I'm like just wheat saying, is. I'm just saying it's a whole lot easier to grow that wheat and barley, emmer yep. and barley, sorry, in Egypt than it is in Greece or yes. the Italian peninsula or yeah. other parts of Europe or Mesopotamia where you're praying for rain in your yeah. landscape that really ev everyone is, is, you know, a little bit portly and, and a little bit drunk mm -hmm. all the time. Yeah. And I think that that, it's sad that Egypt isn't like that anymore. Maybe yeah, not I the latter right part. It's now, it's now sugar instead of alcohol. Egyptians love their carbs to this day. 
We every day, day we would get brought Hamdi would bring us sugar cane juice. Yeah. And it's really good when it's like right when you get it and it's really cold. Yeah. But then of course as throughout the day because we're like walking around the tombs and stuff, it's getting warmer, and like it's nice a little pick me up like yeah. when you're kind of starting the flag, you're sweating like it's a nice kind of a little like you know Gatorade type thing. But as it gets warmer, you're like this is so sweet. Yeah. But it's just sugar cane. Yeah. And then Jeff and I made the bad choice of not throwing it away <gasps> and it fermented like in like two days. Really? And it exploded. Holy oh, moly. No. Exploded. In a plastic Yes, it was bottle? in a two liter plastic. That's and gotta be so sticky. It smelled <laughs> so bad. And this it was- This is my nightmare. The whole entire bathroom exploded. Like I felt so bad because it smelled so like, like vinegary, sweet. That I like cleaned the whole bathroom like three times with our little Dr. Bronner's, like, because I was like so embarrassed. What do we say when you go to Egypt? Bring your Dr. Bronner's. I was so embarrassed. I always bring a bar and it was soap. No problem so at the airport security. Sticky for like, I had to like clean it so many times. Like, oh. thank God Egyptian bathrooms are just like tile, so yeah. you can just like hose everything down. But it was like, and my was, favorite like, is the Egyptian bathroom that's the toilet with the shower right over yeah. the toilet and it, everything's an all-in-one yeah. and it's just water everywhere. But anyway. Yeah, yeah we had our um, little squeegee thing. Put a drop to drink. <laughs> we had a squeegee But anyway, Egyptian food. So okay. from so, tomb context, we have food preserved for us. Mm -hmm. That's how are we accessing these things? Tomb painting, show but us. But we have food preserved for us from where? From tombs. So tombs. you're not going to get lamb. You're not going to get... Like lamb. in a tomb context or on a on a tomb wall yeah you won't get desert animals oh, preserved yes. in the same way mm -hmm. you won't get pig preserved yes. even though we know they ate pork um you won't you won't get a lot of things that that are were part of the diet you need yes. the clean things you also need like, like the patriarchal yeah, it's like legs of cattle things. and things like yes. that yeah like how many people are eating beef on a daily basis not too many but that's what's on the tomb wall so we're like yes have some beef and you get some duck these are the fancy things yeah. right yeah duck a lot of fowl yeah. yes they didn't have chicken. Chicken wasn't a thing yet. No, because Tutmos III tells us yeah, that there was a chicken or a, a bird brought in that lays an yes. egg every day. Yes, no chicken. Miracle. No chickens. Yeah. No also, certain. Go ahead. Also, people would be eating fish yes. like all the time, yes. and we have very little yeah, like fish, visual sure. references or yeah. visual depictions of fish. Yeah. Um, um, in fact, our word for like taboo, um, bet, betu or beti, is yeah. is determined with the fish. Yeah, so like it seems like in many ritual contexts you were, which you know we've all been to fish markets where you you know you know what happens to fish if they sit out yes. for too long in the sun there's oh, a reason probably do. why that makes sense um yeah. but uh these are underrepresented in our kind of literary and uh visual yes. culture sources. and other weird things that amr shahat mm -hmm. um dr amr shahat former uh ucla coatsin graduate student told me things like um tiger nut mm -hmm. which is this weird grass that grows along the banks of the nile if you go, you're leaving me that weird look. No, I'm, I'm curious. Just I'm just like, is. you're a paleo nut and you go to your health food store, there's gonna be tiger nut flour, there's gonna be tiger oh. nut crackers. Oh. Everything's made of tiger nut because it's high in protein. And Remy will tell you that he hates tiger nut with the heat of a thousand suns because tiger nut in Hawaii is an invasive species brought in from, I don't know, uh, Africa. Uh -huh. And it takes over the yard and all he did was pull out tiger nut all the time. You have to go all the way to the root. It is. It is super um, sustainable. Rich in nutrients. In its indigenous place. At rich in nutrients and many peasants would live off of tiger nut. Mm -hmm. What they made out of it, I don't, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, so a lot but, of like yeah. indigenous 
grasses and nuts and But days. this isn't something you're going to see on a tomb wall, for instance. No. Because what, well, you, like, can you tax that shit? No. Also, what do you tax? Emmer and barley. That's what you're going to show. How hard is it to discern like a painting of something? And people will have articles back and forth mm-hmm. trying to be like, it's this plant. It's mm-hmm. this plant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will say that my favorite item that's represented on not necessarily tomb walls as much, but temple walls, mm-hmm. are the danishes. Like, so, so I bas- just cakes. had a friend. Sweet cakes. Just had a friend message Jeff and I, a good friend, and said, "Did the Egyptians have cookies?" Because him and his did. friends were having a debate about the earliest cookies, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Well, it depends how you read like the sweet cakes, cookies." Because are we talking about things that have like a baking soda, like a cookie? Like like a chocolate chip cookie in the American sense, not a biscuit. You could put a yeast um, in there, yeast cookie. But or they're something. not adding yeast in Egypt. They're it's a yeast from the air. I'm sure they in. had a sourdough. Well, they had a mother. Yeah. 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 But like, but I said the mother. <laughs> We're starting to, to like, we all giggled at the mother. <laughs> yeah, like date cakes, like all yeah. these little yeah. sweets cakes and little like. And they you know, look honeyed. so much like our kind of contemporary like sweet case yes. where there's like, you know, like they're an oval and you can tell that there's like some kind of filling in the center and the sides have been pushed in. Yes. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you that there was some sweet emmer I'm... dough, mm-hmm. maybe with the levening, maybe without, and you put a date in there without the pit. Yeah. And then you've got a cookie. Well, I feel, it's a cookie. I feel yeah. like we don't recognize enough how lack of sweet things would have been back pre like industrialization of sugar mm-hmm. and like beet sugars and cane sugars and all these things and that yeah. to have something sweet like like honey mm-hmm. you know like i mean dates were but dates are dates are still worth their weight in gold mm-hmm. if you own a date palm tree yeah that's a huge producer you dry that stuff you the dry dates are there for a long time in your storage but dates i think would have been a big sweetener probably more than figs when does sugar cane come in much later. Yeah. yeah. But Carrie, you're absolutely right. This Asia. is why, and they, they also take a long time to be productive. Yeah. So it's, this is why it's like when Ashurbanipal goes and like sacks a city and destroys their date palms. Oh. Because it's like, it's a big deal yeah. because this is like, it's basically like the equivalent of salting the earth in a yeah, way. Yeah, 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 yeah. But so other, we have olives, yes. oils. Olives don't grow quite as well in Egypt. Yeah, they're Egypt. importing a lot of that. Maybe you from know, the Levant. If you're going to have an oil in Egypt... I, okay, Lindsay I'm going to say Doyle. something really potentially offensive. And I'm just going to say it and okay. everyone can come at me. But out of the entire Middle East, I would say that Egypt's food is... Modern Egypt. Ancient, maybe too. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in. I know what you're I'm going to go geographically. Is like the Ireland of Europe. It's The food is not as spicy. Yeah. It's more bland. It's more regularized. And I'm going to say that this place wasn't as internally or externally competitive. And the more competition you get, the more wars you get. Like think of the Italian peninsula and how much they argue over whose pesto is better and how to make Mm -hmm. it. Or the hummus wars, Israel versus, you know, Palestine versus whatever. (laughs) Everywhere. Like our hummus is better and we know how to make it. And... And I will also say that... Or like blendings of like French colonialism with like... Yes. Where Egypt doesn't even do hummus. They do. They just do the tahina usually. Yeah. yeah, You can get it now, but yeah. And Egypt is very wet. It's very wet. It grows barley and emmer better. Yeah. And it doesn't grow vines as well. So you better like beer and you better not... If you're rich, you can import your wine. And... 
and you're not going to get an olive oil. You have to import that too. And linseed then oil. Linseed oil. You know, flaxseed oil doesn't taste yeah. like ass. It's okay. I've, I've had it. Mm-hmm. It's good. But it's not olive oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're going to have a different palate and a, and a different... Just there's just things are going to be different lots than in of, Lebanon, for lots instance. Lots of um, cured meat, like salted meats, yeah. right, and fish, yeah. like things like so. Jerkies. Lots of food, but maybe less less taste compared to someplace like Syria, or Lebanon. This this is what I feel in my gut. If I'm wrong, but, okay, we get our time machines out. But this is what I feel like it was. You know, people have like you know the little vegetable patch mm-hmm. where they're growing onions mm-hmm. and garlic. Still to this day, and, onions are like, and like spicy onions. So their onions are really spicy. Yeah, they are. Um, yeah. But like still to this day, like eating just like a raw onion is like an important yeah. part of like. Of an Egyptian. Well, I mean, that's yeah. iftar. Yeah, and they're true. And they're great. They're they delicious. Are. I love they onions. Are. Yeah. So like onions would have been a big flavor profile. Um, garlic. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think like we have like lettuces and cabbages as well showing up. And eggplants, right? Egg. Plants, I believe but so. No tomatoes, obviously. No tomatoes. Cucumber. These are new. Cucumber. Yes. Um, watermelon. Beans. Zucchini. Beans. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know um, Watermelons are an African. Mm. Yes. There's watermelons showing up. So, like for fruits, a lot mm-hmm. of most fruits are from Central Asia, Iran. Um, but watermelon, melons in general are I African. I feel, and you guys can come at me for this too, that compared to a drier place, I think you would cook things more. Fully, like this is more of a well-done culture than it is a medium, rare, or raw culture because... No what, what? No zucchini. Zucchini is a new world. Oh, no zucchini. Yeah. Oh, okay. But uh, because the a wetter a place is, the more quickly things rot. Mm-hmm. And it's so wet and there's water everywhere. I feel like just to protect themselves and they've got parasites all over and they're like, oh no, cook it, cook it all the way. And so even if you have a beautiful garden... I don't think you're necessarily, I mean, you're going to eat things raw, yes, but you're also going to cook things into stews. I was going to say, I feel, I feel like a lot of, like, we don't have any recipes from ancient Egypt. No, we don't. No, we don't. But from ancient Mesopotamia, which, again, is still a riverine place. And mm-hmm. from Rome, especially, too. And from Rome, stews were kind of just the mm-hmm. go-to mm-hmm. Um, type of food, you know, that you would, entree, I guess we could say. Um, I think it's just easier to make like a stew because then you can just l- use all the leftover bits and mm-hmm. let it cook for a while, every- add everything together. Yeah. It tastes good. Yeah. And you could dip your bread or whatever into it. And um, You'd have lots of milk things. You'd have cheese. I was cheese. just going to say, yeah. so we have evidence of like ancient cheese. I remember from Saqqara recently they found that huge thing of like old cheese. Yum. So maybe, yeah, it's like <laughs> dairy milk yeah, so dairy products of some sort, and also you know even though wine was not wine wine grape or um, grapevines do not grow well along the Nile Valley and the oases they grow very well. Yeah, that's oh, true. Yeah. And then you have all these different types of wine. You just have you know your standard Europe or Arab wine. Mm-hmm. Then you have your um, Mechek, your mixed wine, which is probably mm-hmm. like your fortified wine. But they would add incense, fortified and wine, yeah. incense, and yeah. other things to flavor it and preservatives. Yeah. And like Tut, isn't his tomb like he had white and red wine, and like different cardinal directions and mm. do we also have shedef wine which is oh, like it's that? probably like it's like a high value kind of commodity yeah, i think it might imported, be like um maybe. maybe like a date wine or a plum wine yeah so date wine which is kind of your moonshiny kind of stuff right yeah, well, I like mean, a, it's anything with a high sugar content if you let yeah. it sit it will ferment to some degree right so as it did in your bathroom that time yes <laughs> <laughs> and if the lid's closed it will explode yeah. wow 
That's um, crazy. But so like, you know, mainly probably a vegetarian type diet. I think diet. so. I think um, most yeah. people with were vegetarian. Meat, maybe perhaps more fish. Meat on festival days. Meat probably once a week. Some fish. Um, every de- once every decade. Um, yeah. And every decade is every ten days, mm-hmm. dear listeners. But yeah, maybe more fish perhaps. But yeah, a lot of heavy grain mm-hmm. based diet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll we'll end food there. Maybe we can we can talk we can go back yeah. and really um, food at some point. Yeah. Um. But that's that's an interesting topic. Yeah. Okay. So Joshua asks, he wants to know more about interactions between Kush and Egypt. So people from the South are depicted a lot as enslaved people, etc. Yeah. Not exactly friends, but maybe not so much, I like ideologically d- depicted as foes. Yet, at the forts in the south, there's a lot of evidence of coexistence and Egypt using them as conscripts for soldiers, right? We see the little tomb uh, models where we have Nubian people shown as archers. How do these three types of view, right, of foe, kind of friendly, also like conscripts, um, how does this... How does this work, right? Is the propaganda machine purely at work here with the negative or is evidence found merely for friendships uh, outliers from the norm? And if it was both, how would you de- designate this way of interaction? I would start with with a, an analogy and say that if you went to the border, you went down to the border of Texas and Mexico, you could probably find somebody working for a border control, CPB with a, with a Latino last name, and maybe generationally they find their origins below that border but because they're now working for the control border control they're perceived in a different way and then in their social media in their outreach to friends in their political and social dealings with people they would not be perceived or depicted as this enemy yeah but the maybe they have the last name hernandez or something so the cpb hernandez will be depicted completely differently from the the mule and i'm using that very derogatory Mm -hmm. word purposefully or the the drug lord or whatever it is that people say by the media that by the media or television or or political leaning or whatever it is somebody who is considered working against the law and order or whatever whatever his rapist coming over the border in droves or whatever Mm -hmm. um and then you're, you're going to depict that person in print and in picture in a very, very different way. And so it just depends on what side you're on and what side you've chosen. Well, this and, just speaks to whole like understandings of identity mm-hmm. and the intersectionality of identities, right? And like, hybridization of identity and code shifting of identity. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think you can have one like ideological understanding where Egypt has these foes, you know, people from the outside, the Levant, the Libyans, the Nubians, but then like on the ground, you have examples spanning the gamut of types of interactions. Well, also, you know who else is depicted as enslaved people with, you know, their arms bound tightly around their, behind their, or to their backs and then a noose around their necks are Egyptians as well. So it's, you know, Egyptians are, Northern and Southern Egypt is amongst the nine bows. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. not always, but sometimes. And so the, again, the idea is that not, it's not a kind of modern racial distinction, but yeah. it's more of like the people that the king needs to control. And again, control is subjugation. But control even. is like literally grinding them under the king's heel. Mm-hmm. I will, here's a great example from Egypt, and that is the bodyguard probably of Hatshepsut, 
Mai Herpri, mm-hmm. whose tomb was found in the Valley of the Kings and who has a book of the, had a book of the dead made for him, mm-hmm. ordered. And he ordered that book of the dead by going to the artisan who made it and saying, make it look like me. And the artisan who made it gave him dark skin, gave mm-hmm. him African-like hair. And he's he was a tall man with these features. And, and he has this book of the dead that depicts him in a very positive yeah. way. Taking those features, that phenotype, which we might consider Southern Egyptian or um, Sub-Saharan is such a buzzword and it's such a problematic word. I know it's what you want to say, but Egypt is in the goddamn Sahara. So I don't, you know, what is Sub-Saharan when, when what's right there yeah. to the west of Egypt is the Sahara. Well, and like, but if we want to... But like, what, <laughs> what would be depicted as a very derogatory South, Southern African phenotype for my hairpree is blanded out maybe made more on par with an Egyptian North African phenotype. Um, that's a tricky point but for me to make. Who's the viceroy of Kush that has a tomb in Egypt and a tomb in Kush? And in the Egyptian tomb, he depicts himself more Nubian. And in 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 Nubia, he depicts himself more Egyptian. So he's yeah. like Stuart Smith's work. Yes, yeah, yeah. and he's just like playing with these ideas. So it's like... Is this Hui? Is it Hui? Oh, I is don't it remember. The, it's Tut. Yes, I think Hui. it's Hui. Yeah. yeah, and it's in um, Menedit. Yes, yes, yes. I went into it recently, actually. Oh, cool. Yes. Um, Hui. Um, but does it include but, phenotype features of the face? Like how he depicts his face? Yeah, and he has Nubian, quote-unquote Nubians, in his Egyptian tomb. It's really cool. And they look very Nubian. Yeah, because yeah. It's, it's like, this is what people he's, from this world are supposed to look like. Yes. This is kind of how the Egyptians control the world. But then in Nubia, there's like more flexibility and it's more of with like... with these ideas. So it just goes to show you that, like, we shouldn't trust these images. Yeah. Take yeah. them for what they are or a Libyan who might be shown wearing all these feathers in his head when he's an enemy coming in on the walls of Medina and Habu when he's Harry whore who's the chief Mm -hmm. of the Meshwesh but also a priest king but these identities are are contested owned um some you want to stick close to some you want to disassociate from but so yeah, it's, we'll say it's mostly the propaganda machine yeah, yeah. perpetuating these yeah. like very yeah. strict, like othering stereotypes. And also if you just want to think about the, you know, kind of people, people that live along the Nile, the Egyptians and Nubians are so much more similar to each other. Like, because they're like, what are they disconnected yeah. by? The Batan el Hagar, which is like, you know, it's still part of the river. You can cross it pretty yeah. easily as opposed to like cataracts. crossing the Sinai or crossing the Sahara. Like yeah. these are where the cultural or the ethnic divisions are yeah. more acutely felt it's because they're, they're, they're real geographic boundaries. But with between Egypt well, and Nubia, these are just authoritarian distinctions. I've always wondered, you know, we have the Amarna letters speaking towards a more Near Eastern perspective where the king is marrying the daughters from there. We have like good sound evidence for that. But I'm like, I'm sure there were letters going back and forth between Egypt and the South and like how many princesses were also being married from the South into Egypt. And we're just, we just don't have the literary evidence to say so like we do from this other, you know, Akkadian context, whatever. Yeah, dynastic marriage is a real thing. And like they're bringing with them all of their cultural and retinues of you know, ladies-in-waiting or whatever we want to term it with them and changing court culture in these ways. And this Northeastern African part of the globe saw so much change in, if you want to use the word ethnic, phenotype, physical, genetic makeup. What is Egyptian depends Mm -hmm. on when you're asking. Mm -hmm. And do we really want to ask that 
it's <laughs> the to Egyptians me, are always going to, to depict themselves in the ancient world as a little bit different from the Libyan, a little bit different from the West Asian, and a little bit different from the Nubian. Hey, you're going to nitpick the like little quirks. Every and they're culture, in the middle. Every culture portrays themselves as the absolute and ideal balance of all the cultures around them. Yeah. You know, huh. they're not too hot, they're not too cold, they're not too dark, they're not too light, um, they're not too um, kind of wild, they're not too tamed. Mm -hmm. They're just just the right balance. Yeah. Yep. Agree, agree. Okay, Monica says, this may be a newbie question because I just enjoy learning about Egyptian history as a hobby, but a while ago I saw on one of your emails a few links with museums with stolen Egyptian antiquities, and in one of the links you mentioned the Nelson Atkins in Kansas City, where I live. I was so sad to see that because the museum is the only place I've been able to see anything about ancient Egypt before. Also, I thought, obviously naively, that only the big ones, like the British Museum, did that. So after that, I've been trying to figure out if anything else of theirs is stolen. But the website doesn't help, and I'm not sure where to look to find out, you know, how pieces are ethically obtained or not. So they're looking for how do you find museums' provenance for objects? This, how this do you look great. into this yeah. further? I did a few cursory searches, but I think I was out of my depth. I'm curious what you guys think about visiting museums with stolen objects or objects obtained dubiously, we can say. I hate not to go because that's my only access, but at the same time, I don't want to support them. Oh my God. This is such a heavy question. Yeah. Um, great question. It's a great it, question. It's really wonderful and well articulated, not newbie at all. Um, so, you know, first of all, I wouldn't say that they're stolen. That's what I said, dubiously obtained. Right. So I would say that most of the Nelson Atkin objects, Atkins objects in Kansas City, would have been acquired by wealthy Americans. A lot of them are, aren't they Petrie? Doing the, that, I don't know if they're buying like things patron. from yeah. well, a partage like, yes. or there's patronage. That's what I think it is. But it's wealthy Americans engaging in a grand tour, intellectual interest in Egypt, mm -hmm. purchasing things through the art market in that way, visiting Egypt themselves working with Sotheby's or Christie's as was, or these are, those are institutions with long lives too, and buying things into their personal collections. And then the patrons give them to a museum because, and they, many of them, and I don't know, I have to look at Nelson Atkins, and this was probably a link to an article that did more research into this, I don't know. But, but they probably had them in their homes for a while. Yeah, like and then they would go into the museums. Right? I think they're referencing, remember, I can't think of the name right now, but who did that article recently on Tut's like jewelry that was like split up? Mark Gabold. Yes. Yeah. So that article, I think one of the pieces is in ah. the Atkins hmm. collection. And so it's part of this, like some of the pieces that escaped Tut's right. collection. And I mean, the art market cleanses provenance yes. from so many things. And so people who are engaging in purchases from the art market don't know the origins well, and they, they don't then, know they're buying they stolen care. things and back then they didn't care. now it's like museums pretend to care mm -hmm. or or do care i i would go with the former pretend yeah but they claim you know like when sotheby's or christie's has a sale they have to provide all the provenance of like you know so and so bought this obtained this object when it was okay and it had then since been in so-and-so's hands and then it was bought or sold to so-and-so and you can track this back but a lot of times the stuff is fabricated it's dubious say you have a clean clean background yeah and you have a clean provenance and they 
you know, somebody went on the grand tour. They went to an antiquity shop in Luxor. Great, great grandma. They bought a whole bunch of shit in like beautiful shit in like 1875, Mm -hmm. and then they brought it back. Do you consider that stolen? And then if a, a museum purchases that from a private collection, do you consider that stolen? Colonialism goes deep. These, this is a Just question of a privilege and, and generational wealth. Collection. I wouldn't consider it stolen. No. Is it problematic? Well, that means everything that every Western museum owns from some place that doesn't have the fiscal power of the American dollar or whatever is going to be problematic, but it's not stolen. So I wouldn't stop visiting the Nelson Atkins. Yeah, that was going to be my point. I would say I don't think it's unethical to go and visit these museums, Mm -mm. especially if it gives you joy, if it gives you passion, go ahead and keep doing that. Um, And and again, I think you're doing the correct thing by just kind of knowing the framework that you're walking into, understanding the space, acknowledging what it's doing, acknowledging the story that it's trying to sell and pushing back against that as you're able. Where I might advise... You know, maybe there's kind of ethical territory if you're like a big donor to this museum. Mm -hmm. But then, so maybe either don't give money or give money with the understanding that it needs to be used for ways that you consider to be ethical rather than just kind of, you know, for example, new acquisitions. Um, So this is where you can exert your power there. Um, But I would say that there's, I don't see anything wrong, especially, again, if this brings you joy, go keep doing that. Keep, Keep learning from the ancient world. And about doing searches into objects provenance. I mean, Good that luck. depends about how much the museum is willing to put on its online database. Yeah. They might have more information internally. Mm-hmm. So you could always reach out to the registrar registration department of the museum and ask for more information. A lot of times they'll have further things that they're not posting you know, publicly. I would get to a university library, get on JSTOR and see, put in Nelson Atkins and see what you can yeah. find about provenance and, but and start looking at collection history. These I are projects that museums there. are doing more of. You know, yeah. They have people, yeah. like I can think of the Getty, where they have people who's like sold jobs or like researching provenance and like looking at provenance and, and things, l- things more. I want to say this because we, we shit talk museums a lot. Yeah. I've worked at museums. Amber's worked at museums. I think you you work at a research institute connected to a museum. Mm-hmm. Museums are not evil any more than the late capitalist universities we currently work at are evil. Mm-hmm. We all find ourselves part of these broken, flawed systems. Do you walk away from the entire flawed system? Or do you try to do what you consider right and balanced within that system? Yeah. I think you have to do that. The whole thing is like, by you not going, it's not going to like, the museum's not going to close yeah. or end something. So yeah. it's like, take what you need from it. And yeah. And also, something. even if you burn down the museum and you decide, you know, this is this is tainted, we, we can never do it again. Up. Something, you're just going to create another institution that's going to have a whole new set of hierarchies. Yeah. And especially if you're kind of, the worst thing to do with an institution is be like, the, this isn't a utopian institution. Yeah. yeah. All institutions are problematic. All I think them. just educating yourself, like, you know, yeah. they're doing and being aware of it and then telling other people mm-hmm. of this and just, you know, acknowledging it and being aware. Yeah. And the Nelson Atkins. It's not I, as bad as Oh others. my God, no. It's I, not the Met. No, I mean, the Met actually. Sorry. <laughs> no, but the, I mean, the Met made some bad choices in the past five to 10 years. Y- yes, bad choices. Yeah. I think those choices were imposed on those curators. I'm not blaming the curators. I know, but I think that, but yes, but I think those choices were highly problematic but not necessarily the curatorial oh, I don't blame voice. the staff it's never the staff's fault it's but, always well i would say that st louis museum of art i think that there's some staff that are complicit in allowing an object that was stolen from a storage magazine in saqqara and caused the suicide 
of Gonim, the archaeologist who was accused of taking it, and that they refused to give it back, that the Khanefer Nefer mask, I think there, you're like, oh my God, that that's gross and it's beyond the pale and yeah. it's highly immoral. And there I'm gonna be like, okay, I would I would look at that with some serious side eye. And it's a recent acquisition, the mask of Khanefer Nefer, and you can you can Google this and there's lots of articles out there to look up. But you know, a Nelson Atkins, a Kimball. I, I don't see these places. In a as... lot of cases, it's like they're not doing anything worse than no. other museums mm-hmm. are doing. So if no. you're going to fault that one, you have to fault them all. And and we're part of University of California system. And you mm-hmm. guys all just went on strike and got a 50% pay increase that UCOP negotiated and is now not going to cover at all. And does that make the entire University of California system tainted and immoral? I mean, in some ways, yes. But it's also one of those late capitalist systems where we're just like, we've got to try to hold on with what we've got, trying to create something good with what we've got. Because you know we, we do good work yeah. in this system, and you just try to do what you can do. So I would consider volunteering at yeah. this space, being a part of the work. If it brings you joy, go towards it, and then see what you can do to change an institution as much as you can from the inside out. Mm-hmm. I really deeply believe that. And I, I would work at, if, if my option to be an Egyptologist was to work at a museum, I would be there. Mm-hmm. And I would be there 100%. And I would be talking about how we can change it from the inside out. And the problem is, is the institution, the corporate institution the museum usually does not let their curators do that. I don't know of one museum that allows that, to be honest. I don't. No. I yeah, don't so have any experience working with museums. Working against so. a thing. Yeah. So, but yeah, keep going. Yeah. Just keep you know, yeah. I think you're on a good track being interested in these things and asking these larger questions instead of do, just being like pretty objects. Yay. Do the best that you can, whatever yeah. context that you're But don't feel it. guilty or anything about going. Yeah. You know, these were choices not made by you <laughs> that are dumb. And at the very least, now that they're there and on display, you know, learn about it then. Because mm-hmm. otherwise it's just going to waste and just sitting there on display for no reason. Mm-hmm. So might yeah. as well make the best of it. Yeah, and that Tut stuff, you know, those pieces of mm-hmm. jewelry that are arguably taken from the tomb illegally, that's a Howard Carter problem. That's yeah. a Lord Carnarvon yeah. problem. Do it. That's not, you know, that that's um, very bitter, a very bitter man who was upset that he didn't get a partage to be able to pull things out and decided to do it on his own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Little self-help, yep. if you want to use a legal phrase. So, you know, it's, it's extraordinary that that's only just been revealed. <clears throat> Mike says. Yes. I recently got into grad school, and I'm thrilled to start in the fall. Congratulations. Congrats. Congrats, Getting started on my new uh, research is what I'm most excited about, and I really want to be able to set myself up for success. During my master's program, what are the top goals you recommend I seek to accomplish to be best prepared, I think, I guess, assuming for a PhD? Mm -hmm. Um, What did you ultimately find that helped you the most? That might not be as obvious. At what point over the next two years should I feel somewhat set on the topic I am applying to do my PhD work on? I for sure have specific subjects in mind that I'm exploring, but when I apply to schools toward the end of my master's, I want to be conf- I want to confidently be able to let PhD programs know what I intend to work on. Right. Thanks for inspiring me with all your work and all the amazing ongoing conversations. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, I'll start by saying I want Jonathan to hit the language component of this because... I think that's probably the main thing for a high training subject like Egyptology. That's yeah, like, what, what the are master's you looking demands. For in yeah. the PhD. So you can you can hit that as our language specialist. But for the 
topic, you know, your master's doesn't have to become your PhD. You don't have to write on the same thing, but your master's is really going to be your writing sample for the PhD application. And so you want it to be uh, something that's relevant, that's interesting, that's not descriptive. So you, so you want, you want, and, and you're like, well, I don't know whether my PhD, my, or I don't know whether my master's thesis is going to be like something they want to read. And I get that. So it well, depends. Only gonna, you're only going to submit a 20 page thing. To, to, to your PhD. PhD right? Yes. So it's going to be a sample. But essentially, master's. you know, your master's is something that's not descriptive. This mm-hmm. making an argument, this making a contribution that's crunching data in an interesting new way and that shows you're a good writer. So that's that's the kind of thing that you want to prepare as your writing sample. But for me, when I'm bringing students on board from a master's program, and again, my favorite feeders, University of Memphis, Indiana University, I'm looking for language training. Mm-hmm. And I look at the writing sample first. I'm like, can they think? Can you think? That's what I want to see. Do you have critical thinking skills? Can you argue? Do you know how to work within the field? And then I'm like, what kind of language training did you get? Because you're not going to get it with me. We're going to start reading. We're not, we don't do introductory here. I don't have time. <laughs> Nobody has time. Yeah. And you don't have time anymore because now you're global antiquity. But yeah. what do you think about the language and how you train? Um, they're, they're difficult questions because they, they also vary institution by institution. For example, you, you just said that what is important for you most of all is show me how you think. A lot of other institutions, it's show me that you're not thinking yet. Just show me that you know the basics you can do, the basic citation things. I don't want you to have ideas yet because you don't know enough to have ideas. So it's a tricky... So again, know know which of these between on this spectrum. Know where on the spectrum you personally fall and have an understanding of where the institutions that you're applying to fall. And again, target the institutions that more align with you Oh my God, but, but, but you like just you, hit it by saying that some institutions want you to become an independent thinker and others don't. Yeah. You're exactly but, but right. But also, like, you don't need to come in with this like super concrete idea. Like yeah. even here, no. like right, you have some topics that you're interested in. You don't need to come in and be like, "Here's my question." Unless Here's you're my British, ma- unless this person's yes. British, and then you do. They're, I don't think so. They are. I, I'd yeah. say always have the idea, but never have the idea be set. Yeah. So every time someone says, what are you interested in? What's your big research project? Always have like, oh yeah, I'm doing Fifth Dynasty Sun Temples and I really want to look at this because yeah. I'm interested in economic redistribution. And then two months later, you're like, oh, that's not going to work, but I'm still like economic redistribution. So now I'm going to look at like Papyrus Wilbur and like land arrangements or something <laughs> like that. And so then like two months later, someone asks you the same question. You're like, oh, I'm really yeah. interested in... I can, like, and that's, re- I think, the beauty of and, the Masters is yeah. you maybe have time, quote-unquote, to explore some of these topics more mm-hmm. in depth that you're interested in, to get some ideas, yeah. right? Instead of just being like, I like temples. Like, you can have maybe a more concrete idea of, like, when, where, yeah. specifics. And... and though it seems like it's a given, you want to know how to research. Mm-hmm. You want to know how to use the... The things available to you, the OEB, the Online Egyptological Bibliography, JSTOR, which collects all of these different journals. You Mm -hmm. want to know how to use WorldCat. You want to know how to find the stuff that you need. Looking through weird volumes of such and such. Yeah, Yeah. you know know how how to use Porter and Moss. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. read a citation. Exactly. And you want to have read because Mm -hmm. you're going to get thrown then into a grad seminar situation in grad school in which people are going to be throwing out authors' names and and certain phrases. And you want to be able to 
to hit that at a certain level. Mm -hmm. There is an interesting, when you're a master's student, it's so easy to say, oh, I don't know. What is that? Because you're coming in with beginner's mind and you can be super open. When you enter into a PhD program, it's harder. I'm not saying it's impossible, but certainly in a seminar environment, it's much harder to say, oh, I have no idea who that author is. Who is that? And so you're in class, you've got your computer out and you're going to Google that while somebody's mentioning it and try to figure out what the hell is going on that you've lost the thread of. But you have a couple of years at the beginning of a PhD program where you can say, oh, I don't know. What does that mean? And that time will stop. Yeah. It will but stop. But I also think the you master's is a good introduction to the types of workload you're going to... It's not undergrad at yeah. all. No. And so it's a good test to see if, like, this is what you actually want to do. Yeah. If this is, like, what you want to pursue for the next, like, decade of yeah. your life. And, you know, if you're willing to, like, give up some other things. Master's programs can be tricky, though, because they can also be the kind of situation where professors don't have time to devote yes, to master's students. Fair. So sometimes... If you do the bare minimum, you will still pass. And your professor could be like, oh yeah, your work's fine. Like, mm-hmm. you, any You're comments for me? Focus. Oh, I have no, no comments for you. Like, cause, And your master's thesis is meh. Yeah. And they didn't really read it. Yeah. So, and, and it's tricky because a lot of times you get through the master's program with that and then you're like, okay, so that means I'm, I'm going to definitely yeah. be ready for a PhD program and, and you're not. Um, because, again, master's is really about some way distinguishing yourself from the crowd um, and which is easier and harder to do than it sounds and there's not always and again you have to know your institution you have to know the person I'd say the mo- one of the most important things is get to know your professors as an MA student go to their office hours talk to them find out what they're interested in find out if your research overlaps take their suggestions read the things that they suggest to you Go and, to their office and yeah. talk about the things yeah. they've written. Yeah. Because what do you need to apply to the PhD program but good letters of rec? Those. And if you don't have those human connections, you're not going to get those letters of yeah. rec. Or it's going to be a bland letter that's like, the student was okay, they were fine, I have nothing really else to say, and that's it. And again, as overworked professors, like Kara, you know most of all, you don't always have time, even if a student is super passionate, you might not always have time to... Or there might be times where, like, they come to you with a super passionate thing. You're like, I love this, but I don't have time for it right now. Mm-hmm. But that's still better, and, and that's – don't be afraid of that. And that's just kind of – understand. that's just the way that the, the cookie crumbles in, in contemporary academia. Yeah. That doesn't mean that your work is not valuable, and, and that passion will be noticed. It will be seen, and that's yeah. the kind of most important thing. Don't let the system crush you. Yeah. No. It's easy to be crushed. No. And get imposter syndrome and lose your yes. spirit. Yes, yes. Be brave. Be be constantly brave. And that's one of the hardest things about being an early higher ed student. And then one final thing I want to say is you'll finish in the next couple years. Don't take more than three years in a master's program. Oh, my God. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Good. So finish. Start applying within your second year. And then do not go to a program that's not going to pay for your tuition and give you a stipend. If you do that you are going to put yourself on the back foot for the rest of life. So don't do that to yourself. If you can't get into a PhD program from the master's that you're in, I would look for something else to do. Mm -hmm. And and you got an awesome master's and there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with that. Maybe you apply again in a year after putting a little more work, but there's there's only so much you can do in this anti-intellectualism, anti-humanities world that we all find ourselves in where there's so little funding mm-hmm. for these kinds of pursuits. And sometimes it takes people a couple rounds to get into somewhere. It does. I know people who went through like seven rounds of applications before they got into like everywhere then. Yeah. Because just like, you know, their topic wasn't like sexy and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden it became super sexy yeah. and everyone mm-hmm. wanted this student and blah, blah, blah. So like not getting in doesn't necessarily, doesn't mean you're stupid or like, not at all. like failure. It's just... 
life leads us I, I know yes. this one here besides Remy over there but like life leads you in these paths and you may see something as a horrible failure but it's just life leading you to where it is so you take your to lemons go. and make lemonade mm-hmm. gotta make some goddamn lemonade yeah. add a bunch of sugar yeah okay well good luck well, not Mike. Too much sugar, we're, we're here for not you too much Coconut sugar. (laughs) Is is that really? Is that it's lower glycemic index? Is it really? Okay. Well, anyway, Far Pointer asks. These are all people's handles from Discord. Okay. What do we know about how individuals in ancient Egypt experienced religion? Here you go, Jonathan. Oh. Did your average person interact with priests? Have home temples or uh, shrines? Pick one sect or group of gods to worship over another, like we may think of, you know, Judeo-Christian ideas now. Is it even a question that makes sense from a modern context versus those times? Maybe that's the best place to start because essentially, (laughs) not exactly. Uh, It's a really good question. I think we also have to remember that when we say individuals and kind of normal people, these are things that meant very different things back then. Um, so normal people meant 90% of the population, and this is 90% of the population that was like solely dependent on the land, agricultural workers, no literacy whatsoever, probably. Um, and, uh, again, it's really difficult to say what we know about these people because we don't have a lot of their material necessarily preserved for us. We don't have their thoughts, their records preserved for us. Um, so it's, presumably they had a ideological understanding of the way the world worked around them. Mm -hmm. Yes, but then you're differentiating from what he's asking because religion is an institution for the powerful that only some people get entree into. Most other people are barred. So, But where's the connect, I guess, between the two? That's what I'm asking. Like, it's the same gods, maybe, and some of the same kind of understandings of the way... Maybe yes, maybe no. Like, same... Ontological understanding. I would say the connection is in the local landscape, the landscape that you inhabit and that you probably never leave as a peasant farmer. That this is, you know, if there's the temple, the temple that's closest to your village, this is your chief god. This is the god that you're most interested in. Whether you're allowed in there, probably not. You probably get to stand by the processional route and see the god when they come out for festivals, but Mm -hmm. that's the closest you'll ever get. Other than that, Maybe you can afford to put uh, like an ear stila like near the enclosure wall of the temple. Maybe you can't. Um, but there's maybe, no like going to church. There's no going to church. No. no, like you have to physically be doing something to then reap the benefits. There's no like transactional like relationship between the, you as the, an individual with God. The or king has done the tr- the t- king does the transactional yeah. thing for you. And that's. I- Mod in a sense, right? Yeah. Like yeah, things yeah. all being as they should be. And thus you owe him the debt of your of your labor, mm-hmm. of your loyalty, all of these things. And that's how that patronage works. But I would also add into this ancestor cult. Mm-hmm. So then there is, yeah. you know, is that religion? Not really, but in your village, you might have a very important ancestor from three, four, five generations back who's become some sort of elevated um, ancestor and mm-hmm. maybe there's a little shrine dedicated mm-hmm. to that ancestor maybe you didn't know who they were but people are like oh if you do a prayer to that ancestor so and you're so gonna you they're yeah. gonna help you out they're and and then maybe an effective dead mm-hmm. and maybe they were rich maybe they weren't maybe they're part of your social status group maybe they're not part of your gender maybe not but then there's talking to your parents who have died your grandparents 
talking to your children who are buried underneath the floor. And mm-hmm. I, I would have ta- I would talk to my children every day, I imagine, if I were an ancient Egyptian and I had buried them myself in the pot. And so these spirits and going to maybe if you're rich enough, a tomb. Yes. Well, everyone had a day of the dead in yep. Egypt. So what mm-hmm. did the peasants do for that? The peasants would have gone to their own graveyards. Um, adjacent to what I'm sure they'd go to the wealthy graveyards and try to get some of the things Choo-choo. from that from that nice and some of the good food from that yeah. celebration from their patrons. Well, and I'm sure that's probably what these tombs are designed to do. They're just trying to be little redistribution centers. So yeah. then it's like, oh, you want you want food? Well, why mm-hmm. don't you come into the 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 tomb of my great 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 grandfather who is a wealthy member of the elite, and he then will. you can you can experience it and also leave some offering, like do some voice offerings, name. remember him, yeah. and yeah. And what better way of making a patriarchal community work than having the elites become gods? Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of what this ancestor worship yeah. works. Yeah. How it works. Yeah. yeah. But but everyone in the ancient world, and arguably now, depending on how you live, is surrounded by spirit, surrounded by spirits. You're there near the river, which is of many spirits. Mm-hmm. You have the black earth, which is of a spirit. You have the sun in the sky, which is a spirit. And all of these things are surrounding everybody. Yeah. And so this and like I, what we think of as like science. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? They had different explanations for like why the sun did its thing, why mm-hmm. the moon did. The flooding of the Nile, the stars. And just reading ancient language or letters, there is a religious, spiritual component to everything. And no disassociation where I'm going to live my my day-to-day civil life and Mm -hmm. then I'm going to go to church and then I'm going to go back and live my civil life. It's all embedded in spirit in some way, shape, or form. There was no, like, believing. No gaping chasm between, like, science and and religion or between the natural world and religion. Yeah. So no, no separation. Yeah. So the word religion, the word religion, I think is even bad to mm-hmm. use. Well, well, the Egyptians didn't use a word. For, what What is the closest thing we've so, got? So this is kind of a cool... Well, it's also I, this, what we translated. I as. always like this as a question because the Egyptians had no word for religion. Mm-hmm. Like, they had no word for art. They also had no word for agriculture. <laughs> yeah. And we know, like, clearly they did agriculture <laughs> they did pretty well. They have words for the steps of it, for the plowing, yeah. the planting, yeah. mm-hmm. the harvesting, but no agriculture word. And and for art, chemet, the craft, is craft, the closest we've got. But mm-hmm. it's, it's not art. Like tropes that it's not art. Yeah. <laughs> but it's divine, because Ptah, Ptah yeah. created these Yeah, he did. Craftsmen. He's the craftsman, yeah. yeah. For, so, so for religion... You're just saying it's a stupid... Well, well, the question is stupid. No, no, but, not the question is stupid. No, no, no. I think it's a stupid question. No, don't say that on the podcast. That that we say, oh, there's no word in... No, no, no. <laughs> no, 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 okay. no, 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 He's doing things. Yeah, irchet. Yeah, he does <laughs> Literally, things. And, he, and again, if you look at Vicky's uh, research on the old kingdom, the king is the only one that's allowed to do direct objects, which is just so interesting. He's, he's the one who does things, and then we benefit from his mm-hmm. doing. But it's not like you can't all go to your shrines and, and do things yourself in yeah. your way to get things as you can. I think it's hard for people from our Abrahamic faiths backgrounds because it's very much more like personal like yes that's not the way catholics think well but that is not the way i grew up but i grew up is you go to church and you wait for your priest to give you your magic bread but they're still like you have to do something 
there's still like uh, um, an ask upon you. Not really. And then you have, I have to, to you get have baptized to to as a baby. There's a lot of there's a lot I have of to accept you have to my, my. I have to go to confession and and tell them my sins That's and open myself up. But I don't have to accept Jesus in my heart like an evangelical as a Catholic. No, but like you have all these, you're like to be confirmed. You have all these like things you have to like do. It's just faith. All I just have to do is say that I believe. That's it. Really. That's it. But like, meh. meh. Like, it's really interesting how close Catholicism is connected, even more it's so. It's all ancient Egyptian when they even do the four corners of the zodiac with their incense. Yeah. It's all Egyptian. But it's like even more so than I'd say like modern Judaism. Like yeah. Catholicism is connected to kind of these yes. these ancient That's traditions right. I grew and up more ancient Egyptian, and I w- I had to be seriously Catholic. I mean, seriously Catholic. Yeah. I had to go through all you, the steps. All the I went to Notre Dame for two though. years. I went to Notre Dame, a Bill Barr land, for two years until I was like, I got to get the fuck no out of here. No boys in those dorms. No, no boys. No, you get no. expelled. I'm sure yeah. people snuck. You get it. Yes, they did. But you would get expelled for having a boy in your dorm after hours. Swear to Stand God. On. Swear to God. Okay. Crazy Catholic land. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, so. So exhausting. Egyptian religion is. Uh, Egyptian religion egyptian whatever we want to term it yeah it's a lived experience rather than an abstract belief system that can be separated from like like, understanding more so maybe yeah Yeah. less ruptures Mm -hmm. than we have Mm -hmm. yeah okay our last question it's from brian and he wants to know more about marriage and divorce. Interesting. Oh. In, I know, mean, personally, my personal experience. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> right. Marriage and divorce in ancient Egypt was so very different than our modern, quote-unquote, hallowed tradition. Egyptian marriage, romance, sex seems much more progressive in our modern sense compared to our other modern ideas of these puritanical beliefs regarding sanctity, material goods, children, wills, all that sexy stuff. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Jonathan, you want to start us off? Sure. I mean, my knowledge of marriage customs in in ancient Egypt is very, very targeted to the demotic evidence. I was going to say, did you take the same class with Jan? (laughs) I didn't take the... I never took a class on women in in the ancient world with Jan. But, um, like, a a lot of the things that even I read when I teach demotic, and I'm sure that Solange will, will, will use when she teaches demotic next year are like, you know, you always read these, the marriage contracts, mm-hmm. the sesh and sank, which is actually not a marriage contract, but it's a contract based on kind of, for the elites, kind of what the women will get out of their marriage, what's the property that they're bringing into. In case of divorce, because divorce was actually pretty common, then you could just literally take all this back. So those are different than immediate pairs. Yeah. Because those are post- these are made before the marriage versus an immediate pair is more of like a will. The, yeah, that's more of like a passing from generation to generation. Uh, this is kind of more passing like the, the material that's entering the household and what will be given in exchange so for that material. Like a record. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, that there's there's stipulations for like this is her property and she still it is it is her who will administer it, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. And I know mostly from Dero Medina, mm-hmm. right? My my own world about marriage and divorce. But we and don't have a marriage ceremony. I don't. think it's the coolest, most interesting thing that Egypt, that is so good at obfuscating economic and political realities through ideology, does not try to do that with marriage at all. They're like, this is a founding of a household. Yeah. This is an economic thing. 
this and and when we break it up it's the same deal but that's how they go after it and they don't try to make it like we do mm-hmm. with the we're going to love each other forever yeah. what did he call it a much hallowed institution yeah. catholics make it one of the um sacraments sacraments thank you good girl um somebody <laughs> grew up catholic yeah and and so we the egyptians don't do that yeah which is kind of interesting but, okay, and weird so when on. everything else is the most religious of things to call a it a herodotus on it so when I was reading through the Amarna letters for textile stuff, I noticed that any time when the pharaoh would get married by proxy yeah. to ladies As one of the does. Near East, because that's you know he would send he would send out his person and they would get like a married by proxy from afar. They would the word they use or how it gets translated into English is they would anoint her, and that was the marriage was done. Did you know I just found out that the anointing oil that Elizabeth II and it's all previous. A very, it's gross. It's like the the like manly hormone sack of um, of mammals. Like oh, look oh, this oh. shit up. Yeah, it's, well, it's like that's what they make perfume with. But supposedly it was it's a miracle though, right? It came from heaven, I think. Well, supposedly, it's like, but it's, it's like, like Jesus. It's and... like musk, actual musk, yeah. and yeah. things like that, like secreted yeah, yeah. adrenal like glands of different mammals, and it's and they're they're not using it this time because it's. They want a vegan anointing (laughs) oil. Uh, Yeah, they do. Technically, he will not be king then. But anyway, Ah. this anointing, when you say anointing, now now I think of masculine juices. Anointing anointing is a point of um, transformation in many ancient rituals, whether it be a marriage, whether it be a priestly initiation, whether it be a kingship kingship kind of thing. Anointing is very, very common. But I I just thought it was interesting interesting that it was like oh the advisor comes and we're gonna essentially get married by proxy mm-hmm. and they would say well she was anointed so it's like you're married even though like you weren't here it's done and i was wondering if this is a egyptian practice that we're getting we're seeing or if it's a near eastern practice jordan and- what does christ mean yeah. the anointed yeah yeah, yeah. 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 so it's it's, very- it's clearly you know it, it it's a idea oh, that has traction shall yeah. we say so yeah. i was interested but yeah we don't have like a clear like when we think of like roman marriage they had a very clear ceremony Mm -hmm. she wears this you go from the bride's house and you walk to the groom's house and these like actions happen along the way yeah it's like very clear and it's publicly witnessed and displayed i like to imagine and again imagine here being the key word um but i like to imagine that marriage in ancient egypt would be very local locally determined Mm -hmm. so like what a marriage would look like in a swan would be different from what a marriage would look like, for example, in Bhutto. And it stayed local. And it stayed local. And that a lot of the, I, I, I'm guessing too, a lot of the local marriage customs that you still see in Egypt today, I'm guessing a lot of those have very ancient roots. But I think we can assuredly say there was a party. Some yeah, type of yeah, exactly. Festivities exactly. were going on. Um, Where the drums are banging, uh-huh. and you music. make your, your procession two steps at a time through the group. Yeah, some type of music, lots of food. Somebody eaten, faints. Maybe mm-hmm. some alcohol. <laughs> right, the groom faints, or looks like they're going to faint. A going from one place to another. One perhaps. person gets way too drunk. Yeah, someone yeah. gets drunk. Your uncle, Cocked Uncle Bob, wedding. gets really drunk. And... Actually, any wedding. Yes. Even in Egypt. Uh, one thing I do want to add is that divorce. Yeah, I think it's totally fine in yeah. ancient Egypt. Well, uh, marriage being marriage light until you get maybe a an occupation from a yeah. different kind of people, or divorce being super common, it means that there's less uh, weight 
and dependence put onto the institution of marriage in Egypt compared to the Italian Peninsula, Greek uh, mainland, West Asia. And I would argue it's, and I've said this before, but it's because land is not as owned in Egypt. It's institutionally owned. Everyone's a freaking sharecropper working for the king's court or the temple or Mm -hmm. something. And if you're a sharecropper, you don't, you're not passing anything down. You don't need to get married. You can, you can allow your 15 year old to have sex with the guy, with the boy next door, see if they get pregnant. And then you might found a household. You might do it the other way around is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. You might allow freedoms that you wouldn't in other parts of the world. Yeah. Because you don't have a lot of private property to hand down to the next mm-hmm. generation. So you would then wait and see who gets along, if they have a baby, and then you're like, okay, here's our few goods to found the household. But otherwise, there's not as much pressure getting in or getting out. And from the love poetry, we do, or whatever, whatever we want to call it, but we do see like an emphasis upon like, Sex. Sex mm-hmm. and like... Outright sex. But like liking each other. Yeah. Like act, like love, whatever, however we want to understand that love. idea. <laughs> you know, like, that seemed to have been something like that was... The love poetry, I want to rename the sex poetry. There are, it is very, it's like, I want to smell your dirty undergarments. Is I know. That like literally, like, I want to smell There's your John unwashed. There's a John song with that line in I want to smell your unwashed like, linen. <laughs> but like, that's what it is. Yeah. My one question when it comes to the ease of marriage and divorce is whether that this is a phenomenon, and this is a question that I don't have the answer to, I don't think anyone does, whether this is a phenomenon limited to the upper classes or whether yes. it's it's prevalent through all levels of Egyptian society. Because our, our evidence only comes from the upper classes mm-hmm. so and we this is still like a patriarchal society yeah and presumably you know in most cases how patriarchal societies work when the daughter gets married she goes to she leaves that household and now goes to her husband's household and yeah the ease of coming back like if you get divorced you'd probably come back to your father or your brother whoever is the, the patriarch now to that household do you set up you presumably aren't just like living by yourself without any male. Yeah, you don't see that as much. It's not clearly stated in the demotic text, you're gonna see that, but then you have the overlay of hybrid cultures coming in and it's super complicated. In in late Egyptian right now, we're reading the Doom Prince. Mm -hmm. And it's a text about a man who goes out to West Asia. Cinderella. uh, Syria. Um, Nahreen, I think is yeah, what Nahreen. it's called. And mm-hmm. he goes out there and it is a, it's a Rapunzel story, yeah, yeah. right? Rapunzel, he yeah. puts her in the tower, he dad's got her in the tower <laughs> and all of the sons of the wealthy elites are there jumping and whoever can jump to reach her window and they're leaping, right? Whoever gets there gets to marry the her, girl. Yeah. But it's such a, we love this story because it has such a Western component of there can only be one marriage. It's something that is tightly controlled by the father. Mm-hmm. Goods come with it along with the girl. Um, you, there's no indigenous Egyptian story about winning mm-hmm. the girl's favor like that that I know of. Marriage will be discussed in the tale of two brothers. Yeah. But it's a different kind of story about think... breaking a, a bond between the husband and the wife yeah that's more about i feel like the brothers too yeah, yeah. and i think like from the Amarna letters we have like bride dowry and like bride gifts given right but again it's the king so right. i think it's a much different context like pharaoh gives stuff when he's getting a princess or at the end of two brothers when she becomes the king's wife and yeah. she gets all of these the furniture so, like, and other things yeah how a nor more quote-unquote normal people mm-hmm 
You just, I mean, our words for it. <laughs> Egyptians are normal. They're, not that's the king. why we love not them. The king. Oh, I, that's what you I meant. meant like, oh, I also like, think that Northeast Africa is a weird oasis, oh. giant oasis economy and civilization yeah. that's different from everywhere around them. But like, what everywhere. words do we have that we translate as like to get hitched? It's like demi, like to be moored mm -hmm. to the mooring post. Um, you just said to get hitched. Yeah, I to like get hitched. That. It's yoked, the same. Yoked. To be yoked. Yeah, that's um, what it is in, in to move in together. In, in ball and chain. In Greece, it's you you break a woman. I think like oh you, my, you domesticate yeah, her. Yeah, like oh, you do a horse. I don't like that. That's yeah. horrible. We don't like any of it. No, well, Greece is weird. No. Yeah, this, but, this is also uh, kind of brings me to one of the my final thoughts on the question is that if you look comparatively at other cultures around ancient North Africa, like what's going on in the Middle East, what's mm -hmm. going on in, in northern Mediterranean. Egypt was so much more liberal when it came to yep. women, and that this was a probably a better place to be a woman than oh, yeah. the other cultures that were yeah. around. We it. could leave the house. Yeah. I mean, just think of how virginity was was investigated mm -hmm. and prided, and just this, or or certain temples had these virgin priestesses, and if they lost their virginity, the story the for the virgins. Vestal Virgin is yeah. they have to be buried alive with their loaf of bread. Mm -hmm. You don't get any of that shit in Egypt. You don't you don't see that kind of control of the woman or that kind of punishment mm -hmm. if she breaks beyond her her patriarchal it's sad bounds. It's truly like linked to this idea of like private property. It's that totally it's this, sad. Like cap, like early capitalistic ideas, like what? Really it's the same as as the female kings being able to rule because it's imposed on people by an authoritarian regime. Yeah. And in any other place, that's less the, the most unequal authoritarian place allows the women the most. Mm -hmm. Other places would never allow it. Yeah, it's the same sad other side to the human question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, marriage and. Divorce, we have good evidence for talking about divorce and mm -hmm. things like that. But yeah, marriage is a marriage is a weird, yeah. foggy, bizarre thing for Just ancient cool. Egypt. It is kind of cool. Yeah, maybe yeah. not that big of a deal. Yeah, maybe we all I need like to that. live that way now. Yeah. Just be a little I think more that's chill. Mm -hmm. that's more yeah. like today. I or I think totally among is. some of us today, it's not as big of a thing. And it's a status thing. If you're part yes. of a certain class, then you have to get married yeah. in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. If you're not. Mm, and you have to take the announcement, especially yes. in your like colleges, like alumni mm -hmm. magazine. Shut up. Yeah. Okay. If you can get an announcement in the New York Times, it's a big yes. deal. Oh yes. my god. Yes. yes, amongst the society. Oh gross. Amongst the heterosexuals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but then like there's also I feel like of the more liberal group of Americans of people choosing not to get married. Yeah. Because we yeah. can't afford it. Well, and it's a res it's also, there's that, but it's also a resistance. But also, I just like don't care. It's a, it's a resistance. I yeah, would yeah. Say. it's a resistance. Active but resistance. In I think a response to this against this like the whole trope that we grew up with that you have your house and your white picket fence and you get married and it's like yeah that's not possible because you guys fucked up everything for us. So like I'm just not even gonna like bind the system at I all. I didn't. I'm Jen no, X. I'm talking. I'm talking about Thank boomers. You. Sorry, not me. She was looking at me, and I'm like, I didn't do I, it. I'm sure I'm fucking things up for the generations that will follow I mean, me yeah, in ways true. that I could not even perceive. I saw the true. most hilarious meme that I sent to Kylie and crew, and it was like, I wish I was part of the fuck around and find out generation, and not the we're finding out generation. <laughs> 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 it was like. Ah. <laughs> And on that note, Love it. that's the end of our questions. Thank you all for listening. I think these were fun. Great questions. Um, thanks, Jonathan, for stopping by, My as pleasure. always. You're always welcome. This is... After Lives of Ancient Egypt. Yes. Bye. Bye.
Thank you to our listeners for your support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private Discord server where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.